Hello and welcome to Deep Impact, a proud member of the Doof Network where we dive deep into Wildbo's most Canadian work five years on. Coming up next is Elliot Diebold. And that was Ruben Morehouse. And we are back to talk about Void 7.5. Um, so, this is an interesting chapter. We'll, we have some intense yeah. discussion to have later on. But for now, let's let's get through the first half of the chapter where they fight some ghouls and, and talk about some weird things. <laughs> um, so, Blake, Rose and Maggie are heading into the centre of the city but uh, they have to fight their way through a few goal, uh, ghouls, including one ghoul that is weirdly fat, which kind of keeps Rose guessing. <laughs> yeah. Um. So there's actually a bit of a time skip between where 7.4 ended and, and where this one starts. And and so I guess, um, like, now having gone through it a second time, I, like, Blake has get, like, told Rose, Maggie, and Evan what he thinks yeah. the Bahames trick is, like, based on the fact that he coordinates with stuff evan later i'm assuming i'm assuming he basically told them what he thinks is going on so it's just us that's um sort of trying to figure it out uh as, as it's all going down i don't know if he tell tells rose and maggie evan clearly seems to know because they have their little plan worked out for later but i guess it would be pretty stupid to not tell rose and maggie i don't know uh, yeah um yeah I, like i agree like i i would say blake is stupidly not told rose and maggie some other things uh in the last <laughs> arc or so but yeah. uh not not the uh super tactically relevant i guess so uh, yeah it, it seems weird if if he didn't yeah um, definitely but yeah i i do like how off put by this fat ghoul rose is like yeah um you know because she's got her whole scientific uh approach to practicing and and you know it kind of feels like like uh, if you study biology it's sort of like one of the first rules you learn in biology is all the classifications yeah have exceptions and it feels like she's still someone struggling with that like when you're a first year biology student you're like just just fit in your category god yeah, god. yeah um there's a point where uh blake hears a page turning which obviously we are only meant to assume is rose is actively trying to research ghouls while they're fighting it to try and figure out what's going on which i love um yeah there's a number of moments during this scene where she's just um like reading from the book essentially so she's yeah she's uh you know she's doing on the field uh you know lookups <laughs> basically yeah um and evan basically says something to the effect of ghouls just being stronger zombies because he learned it from a video game and rose <laughs> refuses to accept this even though as as they learn more and more things about ghouls over the course of this chapter it's just clearly true <laughs> yeah the bit where evan later is like so they are just kind of super-powered zombies, and as the, the text just says, I could hear Rose sigh. That's <laughs> good. Yeah, it's classic. Um, so they, they, they talk about how to kind of take out these ghouls, but uh, the best answer they can come up with, I guess, is <laughs> eggs. Um, and they, so they start egging these ghouls, which kind of works. It's hard to tell if it works because it works or it works just because the ghouls are kind of confused by this. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to quickly pull out one line um, where, so first of all, Rose's response to Blake's original idea about eggs, actually it's Evan's idea about eggs, uh, is like, you just want to egg the cannibalistic monsters. And, and I just love this whole scene. I love the idea that it actually wasn't working. The ghouls were just so flabbergasted that like, <laughs> like these randos came up and just started throwing eggs at them. Yeah. That they were just kind of put off. Um, but I also, and then Evan, Evan uh, also mentions that he never liked eggs, so... I guess Walbo's war on eggs is predates uh, what I expected. 
Yeah, so the backstory to Evan's war on eggs is um, he his mum explained eggs to him as she was trying to explain kind of female reproductive health and, and the menstrual cycle, which is why Evan doesn't it kind of get squicked out by eggs now. Do you think this is the origin of Wild Bo's war on eggs? Do you think this is a real story <laughs> from his own childhood? <laughs> um, oh, could be, could be. Mm. Um, but wait, the whole conversation around this is is hilarious. Yeah. Um, uh, like the bit where menstrual fluids first come up and Blake sort of looks at Maggie before he realizes what he's doing. Yeah, and she's and Maggie's just like, straight faced. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's pretty good. Um, yeah. <laughs> it also like I can kind of see why they had to put Evan to sleep though. Like I know like Blake has thought that <laughs> put partially. Evan to sleep. Yeah. They just asked him to go to sleep. <laughs> um, yeah, well, they, but they had to trick him with the whole, like, oh, yeah. it'll help yeah. Blake thing. Uh, because he, he is kind of annoying here. Like, you know, this is a sort of tense planning situation and, and Evan's just getting FOMO about not knowing what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, I, it, yeah, I can see why there was a bit of a need to put him to sleep uh, without Blake. Like, he... he yeah, I guess he can actually be annoying. <laughs> like I loved yeah. it as a as a reader, but if I was there in the moment, I would have been like, "Oh God, just just, just let us now. focus." Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, uh, so they they do kind of use eggs, I suppose. They they smear eggs on weapons and kind of dispatch two of the four ghouls quite quickly. Um, quickly enough that the other two ghouls are put off and Blake says to them, "Hey, you guys can either be killed, you can be bound, or you can swear to never hurt another living soul." And they choose to never hurt another living soul. Yeah, and Blake is disappointed by this, which, <laughs> yeah. um, like, I, I mean, obviously, I get on some level that like he would love to have tools at his disposal, but that is such a different perspective from like the Blake we knew three, four arcs ago. Like Blake back then would have been like, oh yeah, like oh you know that sucks, I guess, but I still did the right thing. Whereas here he's kind of like, oh, I suppose that's right. Yeah, um, I. I think he's starting to realise the importance of having, you know, tools at his disposal, right? Um, and this is kind of, I think, thematically similar to what we've been talking about, how he's dehumanising June a bit over time. Uh, mm. He he kind of realises, like, I don't know, I think I think he's starting to realise that he can't afford to be as empathetic to others as he has been. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's interesting because he offers them this choice, like, they still, like, we, you know... It, it's yeah, a good true. sign that he that he even offers them the choice, but like there's that there's that difference in response to them taking that. Like I I, I do think if this had been Arc Three Blake and he'd gotten a ghoul to swear off ever like hurting humans again, he would have been ecstatic with himself. He would have yeah. been like, hell yeah, like what good I just did. I, I think he actually wouldn't have back in whatever Arc Three he wouldn't have wanted to send a ghoul after anybody even if yeah, you know even yeah, that too. He, he would have been like no way <laughs> who knows what collateral damage that could cause right um yeah yeah and there's a moment in this fight where as well corviday kind of moves towards one of the ghouls and realizes that he can't do anything and just kind of gets out of the way and, and like invites the ghoul to walk past him <laughs> um which is obviously a, a bit of a dick move but i don't know corviday is really kind of endearing himself to me he's very like down to earth and, and seems just like a kind of chill villainous guy yeah i mean like part of me deep down wonders if if maybe this was part of his whole thing like like i don't know because we, we still don't really understand how he does what he does but maybe this interaction seeded some of that because it, it does seem out of character for a ghoul to promise never to hurt another living creature so mm. maybe jp did something to it but I, like, I i didn't really get that impression i just he's so much more like clever or cunning might cunning, be a better word totally, than, than yeah. the rest of uh rosa's party 
Yeah. Like the the rest of them, like, you know, Hexus and, and the Tower Man and stuff and, and Mary are all just kind of blindly obedient or, or insane. Yeah. Uh, whereas, wait, he's so creepy. He's yeah, just so totally. creepy, Corbinet. He's just, yeah. <laughs> he's so clever and creepy and unsettling. Yeah, it's, we'll get into that fantastic. more later this chapter as well. Um, yeah. Corbinet gets some fun moments in the, the later part of this chapter. But for now, they, they kind of have bested the ghouls and uh, Blake and the Cabal walk over to a car that's occupied by a woman. And Blake kind of remarks on her strange connections, but... We don't get more detail than that. Um, rather than kind of attack her, which Maggie seems to almost want to do, uh, they they graciously help her push her car into her garage. And we don't we don't know who this woman is, right? Like Blake and the characters yeah. do, but we, the audience, don't. It's like the the opposite of dramatic irony, which I'm going to call comedic irony. And I love it. It's like it's such a fun way for us to be a bit left in the dark as we slowly find out what actually has happened here. Well, it's just like, it's a different kind of tension, right? Like we've spent. Uh, a lot of time recently uh, on the sort of like the tension has been things could go wrong and people are going to die any second now and this is like different because Blake and Maggie are just so instantly in control of this whole yeah situation uh, or and they're very comfortable and so the tension turns from worrying for them and and instead just sort of like trying to like piece to piece all the puzzle together so the tension comes from you trying to figure something out it's just it's it's just a nice little change of pace for a bit. Yeah, you're right. It definitely, it, it keeps us still engaged, but in a different kind of lighter way than like, oh shit, bad things are constantly happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, don't worry, we'll get back to that later though. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we get this fun setup where this woman kind of doesn't really know what's up. She doesn't recognize Blake, uh, but we find out that she is the fiance of Duncan Baham, right? Um, and and Blake and his his crew know who she is, and eventually she figures out that something bad is going on, or she's told that something bad is going on. But both yeah. of them are stuck in this situation of not <laughs> kind of being able to let that on. Yeah. Um. And, and so just just before we get further into that, I quickly wanted to call out. There's a line. Um. When when uh Blake uh says that they'll help her put her car in the garage. Uh, Maggie gets a bit put off by how he volunteered her for this. And she says, if I wanted to do work, I'd be doing something different with my life. And like, I'm very curious what Maggie's definition of work is here. Because mm. I don't think we've seen any form of practitioning that isn't work on some yeah. level. Yeah, like, sure. I, I, I don't know. Um, and I mean, this goblin queening doesn't really seem like a walk in the park. And, mm. and now she's embroiled in a war uh for a city so i don't really understand what her idea of work is here yeah yep fair point <laughs> yeah that's fair um so yeah we we f- we then find out obviously this woman is joanna the fiance of duncan and and it seems like blake and the crew are here more intentionally than first appeared when this car just kind of broke down next to them i mean yeah like because this whole thing seems suspiciously lucky to me like the whole city's deserted and then like Dunko's fiance just rolls up. Yeah. Like, so I didn't get the impression that they were here on purpose because Blake seems like, oh, this is really lucky. Yeah. And Maggie uh, obviously kind of goes for the hyena sword first and Blake's like, no, let's yeah. not do that. Like, so right. like, wait, is, is someone packing some good karma here that I wasn't aware of? Or like, like you know, this is a. Uh, because it doesn't feel like this was a setup by Lunkin, uh, Duncan or Laird. Uh, yeah, now, now referred to as Lunkin, <laughs> they're, they're I guess. Couple, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. This seems suspiciously good luck to me, and I feel like I feel like there might be something else going on. I don't know. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm, you're right. I'm not sure what to make of this either. Um, it, it definitely doesn't get explained in this chapter, but maybe we'll see if it no. comes up again. Um, anyway, now that they're in the house, it becomes apparent that Duncan knows they're here, but isn't using time magic to kind of teleport here, which is basically what Laird did last chapter to get away from them. Um, and this kind of leads Blake to feel like, oh yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I know what's going on here. Which... I mean, I went through and read this and I'm a little bit confused because Duncan shows up like two minutes after they trip the alarm. Like he, he's pretty damn quick. So I don't know. I don't know how confident Blake should be feeling at this point. Um, (laughs) Unless I'm misunderstanding something like, you know, it becomes clear later that he's right. But yeah. Yeah. It is quick, but it's not a, you know, it's not a immediate thing. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I wonder if maybe there's a bit of time you know, time shenanigans here, I guess. I mean, there's obviously some kind of time shenanigans here, but um, yeah, it it takes what? Yeah, you're right. It actually isn't that long. It's something like 20 sentences between Blake saying, why isn't he being here immediately? And yeah, he he rocks up. Oh, and there's nothing in in there to imply that there was any bit where they were sitting and waiting uh, as well. Like that was sort of what I tried to keep an eye out for. And I didn't see anything that implied that to me. Yeah. Yeah. True. Anyway, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, so, um, yeah, so Duncan rocks up. Uh, actually, so Blake is talking about how he's starting to feel more confident in his theory. I'm curious if you had a point where you kind of started to realise what was going on before um, it gets spelled out, I suppose. N- no, not really. Uh, I, 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 had, I needed it to be spelled out to me. This... <laughs> I was I was thinking in a very like on very different tracks, which you know I'm sure the the ending to our last episode probably uh, made clear <laughs> yeah. to everyone. I, I was I was thinking in very much the wrong direction. Uh, so it it wasn't until Blake was halfway through explaining this that I actually fig- like caught up. I guess not figured it out, uh, mm. but caught up. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, for all of those of you wanting to know what the trick is, stay tuned. Duncan arrives and. <laughs> Uh, and and Blake kind of points out subtly to him that Joanna has offered them food and drink, and therefore they have been invited in, they've got food and drink, there's hospitality rules that kind of have to be observed here, and so Duncan kind of really wants to just shoot them, but <laughs> knows that he can't. Yeah, and, uh, like, who's the smug one now, uh, Bahames? Like, yeah. Blake, Blake is very confident uh, and proud of himself during this whole interaction with Duncan. I, I love it. Yeah, and this is what makes it feel like this is planned out, because Blake really is fully in control of this situation. Like, he really has executed this pretty brilliantly, right? Like, he's set up a situation where Duncan is just neatly boxed into a corner and can't really do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, I'll have some more to say about the (laughs) long-term idea behind this plan uh, as we get further in. But, like, yeah, you're right, this... Uh, this works out very well uh and it's it's nice to see blake so in control and and confident for a bit it's a bit of a different color to what we usually get to see on him so it's it's good yeah um so duncan tries something he tries to grab an egg timer which i assume is some kind of little tricky implement that he can use uh i guess we forgot to mention that duncan's house has a bunch of clocks in it which is great (laughs) um but yeah, Blake notices this and kind of calls him out and, and basically says to Duncan, you know, try it. I know you can't. Um, so, you know, just drop the egg timer and call Laird, which Duncan just kind of has to eventually do. Yeah. So my, my understanding here is that Duncan was basically trying to bait them into breaking hospitality first. Mm. Uh, wait, wait, I, th- I don't think, wait, well, yeah, he didn't have any plans with the egg timer. I think the idea was he was, he wanted them to notice that he swiped it so that they might like attack him and then you know he could presumably attack them back without 
retribution karma karma yes so Uh, blake says something along the lines of hey if you can just freeze time for yourself and escape like you won't really be damaging me so you can do it (laughs) and duncan can't do anything i i suspect that duncan's messing with blake's perceptions would break the hospitality rules right um and so yeah duncan is either trying to force blake to do something and then he can react or just take the egg timer as a resource for later um but yeah blake blake is just like no fuck that (laughs) uh yeah um, um yeah it makes a lot of sense like, like i i didn't really I, I think the reason i felt compelled to explain my understanding of that was because I, I didn't have that on my first read through it was really my second one once i understood the trip more where i was like oh okay so that's what like you know it was it was a bluff uh basically to, yeah. to try and provoke it, an attack yeah um so duncan calls laird laird arrives and so do a number of behame kids and and kind of dolls from the sisters to back them up um yeah i mean Apparently the plan was basically get Laird and his cavalry in here. Um, yeah, because hopefully this well, Blake's gone all in with this plan. Yeah, he he really is confident that now that he's figured out the trick, he can deal with it. I guess, and and in doing yeah. so, take take Laird out, make Laird be overconfident, and and take them out. Um, I want to pull out this quote where <laughs> where uh, Blake is is thinking about whether he should let Joanna Duncan's fiance go, and he thinks I couldn't trust ordinary humans. Then again. She liked Duncan, of all people. How normal could she be? Which I think is just a great fuck Duncan line. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm usually, like, uh, a keen supporter of Team Fuck Duncan. Um, but I, I'm going to have to go against Blake on this one. Like, I know we've turned Duncan into a bit of a meme of incompetence uh, <laughs> in our podcast. I uh, mean, I don't think we did that much work to do that. Well, we? no, yeah. I, I mean, in the story so far, he has not really... Uh, proven that effective but yeah in the mortal realm uh he's like a, an extremely successful and well-liked yeah. like detective yeah like i don't I, I think i think for a normal person he probably is quite a good like um you know catch basically yeah. so yeah i don't really think this is fair of blake yeah all right fair enough fair enough <laughs> um i i want to call out one other thing which is the very next line that blake thinks but it was a kindness and i was starting to think that i needed to be more kind especially after my last visit with mrs lewis which is just a great moment of blake kind of realizing that he he he, he isn't just blindly slipping down the steep slope that he's kind of on as being a diabolist um he's realizing hey i need to make some conscious efforts to be kind which i think is reassuring to know <laughs> Yeah, and because, and, I mean, it really, it like, you know, this is the sort of decision I don't think we'd ever see Rose make because it was a tactical mm. error, uh, but yeah, he sure. lets he lets Joanna go by herself. And I, I guess I don't really understand exactly what in his conversation with Miss Lewis made him think this. Like, she mentions mm. the, like, I went back and read it, and she mentions the slippery slope very briefly. Mm. That's kind of it. Like, I don't really understand what the connection here that concretely i guess Mm. um i guess it just sowed that idea into his head like just seeing her again reminded him of why he's avoided doing all the bad things yeah and why he's not taking the easy way out i suppose um yeah yeah um so duncan and laird both kind of make make some moves they try and pull some tricks and blake kind of reveals that he's cracked it uh the behames don't actually manipulate time, they manipulate the perceptions of people around them to make it look like they're manipulating time. So instead of, you know, freezing time, what they do is just kind of turn off your brain for a bit, they go and run off, and then your brain kind of switches back on, and it feels to you like suddenly things have just happened while time was frozen. Yeah, yeah, and and so, like, at first this didn't really seem 
like a huge twist to me because I guess things like the coffee shop incident uh, way back in Arc 1, I'd already kind of assumed that was how it was working. It was just localized because, you know, if you're altering someone's perception, it's just kind of mm. like localized time messing withness. Mm. Um, but then, like, what the more you think about it, the more you sort of like, oh, this changes like a lot of things. Uh, yeah. And, and we'll get into that uh, pretty soon, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very important because if they're just freezing time, it's there's nothing you can do about it, right? Like, that that's just something yeah. that is beyond your ability to deal with. But as soon as Blake kind of cracks the trick to it, it doesn't actually change how the power works practically, but it means that he, he knows enough about how it works to be able to counter it, which, as he proves, <laughs> is pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, also, as Blake is, is kind of revealing this, we get these little explanations of how previous Bahame magic worked, which is so fun. It's like, we actually, it really makes me want to do another reread when we finish this one to go back and be like, <laughs> oh, what clues are there that this is actually how it was working? Um, I, I want to talk about one, which is the, the slowing down time around the house, which I think is pretty important. Um, yeah. So I, I, I went back to 3.5 when Blake kind of encounters this effect. Uh, because Blake points out that he saw two different things. And the quote that, that mm. is being referred to there is Blake saying, or Blake thinking, I looked and I saw the quarter in the air spinning in slow motion. When I looked without the benefit of the sight, I saw it on the ground. Different views for the awakened versus the unawakened, different effects. Um, that's how Blake interprets it at the time. But it it seems to be, at least from my impression, that when Blake is looking through the sight, he sees time slowed down. But without the sight, he kind of sees it as it actually is, you know? In what Blake thought was, oh, with the sight, I see it as it's slowed down, which is what it actually is. <laughs> the reality mm. is it's not slowed down. Blake is just being tricked into seeing it slowed down when he's using the sight, um, which means this effect is a lot less powerful than it seemed at first. Yeah. So, so because one thing that always kind of stood out to me and like, as you said, I sort of came to the same conclusion that like they've the the effect around the house is basically kind of fake um yep. and and they they they've essentially basically tricked him into thinking the house is inaccessible yes um and th- that's interesting because one of the things when uh Blake was in the Baham houses they were doing the ritual the first time uh is somebody like compliments Laird and was like oh you know this is really clever like you know is this like an original idea of yours and blah 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 and then mm. that that had never sat right with me because then we sort of found out later that uh, the effect is just slowing down, t- uh, slowing down time around the house, and it's sort of like, well, that's not, that's not super that close. creative. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like, you know, as far as time magic goes, creating a slow zone seems like like a fairly unoriginal idea. Yeah. Uh, so, like this, this makes that line retroactively make I, a lot more sense. Where I, it's like, oh, he's he hasn't slowed down time in an area. He's managed to find a way to trick practitioners, or maybe even just specifically Blake, and, yeah. uh, into thinking that that's what's happening. I, I love that this reveal basically solidifies Laird really just being a con man, right? Um, and it, yeah. it, it, it recontextualizes so many things that we just put down to smugness. Like that, <laughs> that one you just mentioned, you know, the interpretation we could have at that time is, oh, it's just people complimenting Laird because he's, you know, head honcho and whatever. He's a bit up himself, right? When actually there's a real explanation for it. Um, a- another one I like is... You know, Laird sent Andy there to watch Blake as he noticed the effect, which at the time we both commented on, like, this just feels like a smug dick move. But yeah, Andy's not there just to watch Blake. Andy's there to to tell Blake how it works so that Blake believes what it is and kind of gives up, which works perfectly, right? Like, 
Laird plays into this idea of the smugness to an extent. Obviously, he's a st- still a pretty smug bastard, but he plays into this because these effects only work because you believe they work how he says they do, right? I, I think yeah. it's great how much recontextualization happens here. Well, I mean, you know, uh, from, from watching TV and movies, I know that the most important part of being a con man is confidence. Exactly um, right. I mean, yeah. well, that's that's where the term comes from, right? So yeah. it's, um, it's, it's essentially part of Led's whole stick uh yeah no it's 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 great it's one of those reveals i think when i first hit it i was just kind of like oh that's that's a bit underwhelming then the more you sit on it the more you're like oh that wait this changes a lot actually yeah like the the house maybe is accessible i mean maybe it's still inaccessible to a point but it's at least a lot easier to 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 deal with now than than it it was when we first (laughs) found out about it right yeah well if it's mostly just perception that they're altering then that like to me, that means there's maybe two most likely ideas behind what would happen if Blake went in there, which is one, he basically gets a couple of free months to to plan stuff when like, like he would be speeding up essentially, yeah. not not everyone else slowing down. Yeah. Um yeah. or two, he could just like put himself to sleep and then like I don't know, like roll I, I guess it's uphill, so I don't know exactly how to do it, but if he just like fell Close asleep. His and eyes then, and walk through, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, why not? Like that's yeah. essentially what he what he kind of does to to get around some of the tricks later this chapter. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways that this becomes a lot more surmountable of a threat, right? Um, yeah, which I love. I, I think it's worth us talking about the police station a bit as well because I think that's quite yes, a confusing please. one. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I definitely. You, you've written a summary here, and, and this is good because I I don't think I hundred percent understood uh, what what had gone down there with with this recontextualization yeah so let's talk through the timeline here blake wakes up in his cell in the morning something like 8 8 9 o'clock in the morning um and it plays out as normal uh with blake eventually kind of hammering home how shady duncan is until it cracks and duncan has to in air quotes reset the timeline right um yep what this reset actually does though is use perception magic to basically kind of move people back to their original positions and make everybody forget that they've already, you know, lived the past two or three hours. Uh, so Blake wakes up in his cell again and thinks he's waking up for the first time, but but in reality he's waking up later in the day, you know, two or three hours mm-hmm. later, and his perception and everybody else who's involved perception, they all think, hey, it's the morning and this is all playing out for the first time, while Duncan knows, actually, this has already happened before and he can kind of deal with it, right? Um, yeah, and so basically... Wait, so then my understanding sort of following on from this is they would have been moving... Wait, their perception was still kind of being warped because they're having to move faster to catch up? Uh, possibly, yes. Or their Isadora kind of talks about uh, back when we thought time magic was real. Um, I mean, not time <laughs> magic was real, but you know. Uh, Those were the days. <laughs> Isadora kind of talks about how this is disruptive because uh reality kind of has to rubber band a bit to to catch up with what with what's been happening um which is still the case in my i mean in my kind of read of what this is their perceptions kind of rubber band uh where bits of time are either sped up or kind of slowed down to make them kind of slide back into alignment with the outside reality yeah so for instance because there's a bit where blake ends up in his cell again and so basically wait so now so what you're saying is you know he thought he was in there for say 
a couple of hours, but really he was in there for maybe like, you know, 20 minutes or something. And, yes, and exactly. that was his rubber banding point. So, you know, maybe there was another police officer who the first time they were sort of alone to rubber band was when they went to the toilet or something. So Yeah, or they sit they, down to work at their desk for 20 minutes and look up and it's been three hours and they're like, oh, shit, I've been working longer than I thought, you know. Maybe yeah. when, you, when you accidentally stay up late playing video games, it's just your reality <laughs> rubber banding to catch up. <laughs> That's what it is. Okay. That explains so much, yes. <laughs> um anyway that, that's kind of how i how i see it working and, and there's some comments later on that dive into this stuff i think we'll get into it a bit later as well yeah um so so blake has figured out the behame tricks and be- because of this <laughs> laird tries to freeze him like five times four times here maybe and and blake only loses maybe two or three seconds each time um knowing that this this trick that laird is pulling is costing him more power than it's costing blake and so he's kind of gaining a bit of an advantage here um and he's able to stop laird from being able to make any real moves and kind of maintain a tentative hold over his hostage situation yeah and there are also bits where like blake is trying to lessen the amount he's perceiving in order to lessen the amount they can alter his perception Mm. uh so like he he uh he like fights duncan with his eyes closed for a bit um yeah so that duncan can't do tricks can't do anything yeah uh, which is, I mean, you, you made a comment a few chapters ago uh, comparing something I can't even remember to like that bit in, in Yu-Gi-Oh where Yu-Gi has to play cards blindly because someone's in his head. And I, I think this is an even more apt uh, time to compare to that. Like, you know, Blake's just like intentionally doing things literally blind uh, in order to limit what his opponents can do to him. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's great. And then, I mean, the other half of this, apart from just you know running around with his eyes closed is uh, evan seems to be able to help him like there's this every time he loses time evan sort of flutters past him so i i guess evan's acting as some sort of clock or uh, yeah i didn't fully understand what evan was doing here uh, i think what's happening here is um if you imagine laird trying to freeze blake in place uh what that would look like from someone who isn't blake is blake just suddenly stands there and doesn't move for a second or two and evan is able to kind of use his natural escape inclinations to to kind of snap blake out of it um so he zones out for a second or two evan kind of flaps his wings and blake suddenly kind of snaps back into real perception of time uh yeah okay i mean well that's just interesting because like evan lost time in the second trip to the police station um yes with blake and rose so like I, i mean i guess I don't know. I feel like I guess Evan must have been staying out of Laird's sight or something because otherwise I would assume Laird would just try to hit both of them at the same time. Yeah, like, I, don't I, know. I, I suspect that now that they know how it works, they're they're able to kind of. I mean, Evan could literally just be flying around in circles with his eyes closed, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah, yeah. Uh, basically, Blake has has cracked it, and it, it makes it a lot more easy for them to. Basically, Laird is. It, is powerless here. I, powerless in the sense of he can't do any magic. He obviously has a lot of uh, people around to help. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there's one other bit I want to call out here uh, that we'll have to talk about for a bit, which is uh, so Duncan sort of attacks Maggie, uh, and and as she's sort of getting up, uh, Blake notices uh, her head was bowed, and I saw a glimpse of something inhuman in her expression when she changed hands, shaking the blood free of her gauntlet. Was she possessed? Was that what was going on with her? Mm. and yeah i mean like obviously we've been getting a lot of hints that maggie has seemed uh really unhinged for for quite a while now um and i i i'd thought a lot of it was maybe just her or her excitement at this whole fire and blood situation um but the idea that it's the idea that this isn't entirely maggie uh actually makes like a lot of sense like my first thought here was 
to tie it back to this whole idea of how how she left Jacob's spell, you know, the things that she sort of refused to yep. talk about. Um, I'm wondering if all of her left Jacob's spell. Like, mm. like uh, I don't know how splitting yourself up magic. Like, you, th- you feel like she's left parts of herself behind? I, I mean, yeah, yeah, maybe. Or I, I, I guess, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the other thing is, is like, we know she's friends with um, Padriac, so like maybe... Well, I guess that's not really how glamour works. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I, I don't know enough about how splitting yourself up magic would work, but mm. she could have sent her more reckless uh, and bloodthirsty side to to go. And I don't know. That seems like pretty powerful. So like, I don't, I don't think it's that. Yeah. The, the ability to split yourself up like that would probably be a huge asset in a lot of situations. So <laughs> this, uh, it, it feels like to me what's happened is a bit of a controlled possession where Maggie's got some reckless thing that she's been using to i don't know give her give her an edge in in combat situations or whatever um and she's just uh been carrying it for a bit too long yeah maybe i mean this whole bit actually had me uh like remembering blake bled himself open and there was a lot of talk of him maybe getting possessed Mm. at some point and that's never really been dealt with i suppose now (laughs) he's 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 largely made out of wax um yeah so like, maybe that counts. I don't know. Uh, yeah. You think Blake has something that's slipped inside him too? I, I mean, I mean, he could. Like, it's hard because we're in his perspective. But you know, I, that would be a very nice explanation for why he's been a bit less human. Mm, um, that would be true. very. That'd be very convenient because then I wouldn't have to blame him as much. <laughs> so I like very that. morally convenient. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, Blake is kind of talking about the hostages they have, and at some point it becomes clear that Laird knows exactly who Corviday is, and this causes him to be like, "Oh shit! Like, oh shit! You have Corviday." Man, like, mm. Corviday is scary enough that Laird knows who he is and realizes that he should play it safe. I mean, like, Blake Blake puts this down to, oh, we have access to the same books, it's fine. But, you know, Laird's from, from Jacob's Bell. I, I really, I don't know, this feels like Corviday is famous enough to be pulling some real wild shit. Actually, Blake said that line about having the same access to the books, but I don't really understand that because I don't think Blake knows that Laird got taught by Rose, so I don't know what books well, yeah, he's really true. referring to. <laughs> Maybe he thinks um, that, that Corviday is just in the you yeah, know, public well to- known. tomes. Um, but yeah, no, like, yeah, Corviday is just so fucking scary, though. Like, Laird's right. Um, the bit where uh, Blake sort of goes to Rose and he's like, we should wrap this up. Where's Corviday? And Rose is like, oh, I told him to stop Duncan. And Blake's like, did you tell him how? And she says no. And then Blake just pauses for a second. He's like, Go upstairs, which is where Joanna, Duncan's fiance, is like, and stop him now. And it's just this moment yeah. of like, oh fucking hell, Corviday. Like, you know, yeah. uh, so it's so creepy. Um He he's really the kind of other that you have to micromanage. <laughs> well, it's just like the way he disrupts things, like, you know, changes ownership on a universal level. Like we've already talked about this. It's so it's so emotionally like it's an emotional attack, really. Oh yeah. Uh, like it, it attacks you your connections to the world, literally and in the world of pact and that's so like it's so existentially terrifying i think that's why he creeps you out so much more than like you know hexus or mary like he's yeah. just yeah the, it's I, just terrifying on a fundamental level all of these summons were mistaken for demons right tallow man yeah. the oil slick bloody mary but jp is the one that i kind of get why he's confused for a demon because he does have that vibe yeah. of like He's just upsetting the order of the world. Like that's yes, that's just what he does. <laughs> no, you're right. Like, like it, 
I would still be happy to classify him as such based on what I know so far in the story. Like the idea of him being a member of like the seventh choir or whatever, like, yeah, the, the fact that he's undoing connections, or I guess he rearranges them, but yeah. like he, he's messing with the fundamental fabric. Whereas, you know, Mary just runs around stabbing things like a maniac. Like, yeah, sure. She's violent, but she doesn't, she doesn't unmake universal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she doesn't violate, you know, she just yeah. attacks. Um, anyway, so Laird and Blake are talking and Laird is still trying to freeze time and he's failing until he reveals that, you know, even with these these time tricks that Blake knows about, Laird has been doing the oldest time trick in the book, buying time. Uh, time for Conquest to arrive and to defeat Rose's summons. And uh, yeah, we really get the sense that this contest is about to be over. Yeah, like, I, I don't really understand what Blake's plan is. I mean, we I touched on that I was going to touch on this later. Um, Like, he figured out the trick, and so I guess his plan was to just have Led charge him and hope it would still... Like, just, just being able to dampen Led's effects would mean he could win, which seems short-sighted, um, as we see here. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I don't quite understand what Blake's plan is here, because this seems like just about the only way this could have gone. Yeah, I th- I think he wanted to use this reveal to to kind of have Laird in a position where he thought he'd be able to use his magic to get out, but he couldn't. But what what ended up happening was Blake just kind of had to reveal that he knew about it right off the bat because Laird tried to trick immediately. Um, which I think you could have predicted was going to happen. I I don't know. I you're right that I think yeah. Blake had a pretty good start of a plan, but didn't really know how to bring it home. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Unless this was all part of Blake's plan, in which case the next chapter's going to get crazy. Yeah, I did not get that impression from Blake's. No, yeah, we're inside narration. his head. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're inside his head, and he's like, "Oh shit, things have gotten really bad." <laughs> which, yes, I mean, unless he thinks that the Bahames can actually read his mind, is is a pretty high level play to make. <laughs> um, but yeah, but that's it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we we we're going to find out how con- how strong Conquest has become, right? He. He actually seems to have been able to easily take out the Tallow Man, you know, what you're referring to as Hexus, and and Bloody (laughs) Mary, who all seem quite powerful, um, which means there's trouble going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, But that's not for this chapter, that's for next chapter. Uh, Before we get to there, I wanted to to pull out some comments. Usually we just pull out one comment each um, that we really like, but for this one I want to pull out some comments that that talked about Baheim time magic and kind of pointed out some cool little things that were hidden in the story about it, because I love love this stuff. Yes, it also Um, saves us from actually having to go and and reread it all, because I I feel like... I don't want to do that right now because I feel like in another month I want to do it for another reason. <laughs> yeah, I think that's going to keep happening, which is why it's great yeah. that there are people who are doing it for us in the comments. Um, yes. I want to pull out what I think is my favorite one of these, which is one by Matthew K, who points out that Laird's implement is a pocket watch, right? And obviously when you find this out, it's like, oh yeah, of course it is because it's a watch, like duh. But mm. the, the other thing about this that I really like is a pocket watch obviously has such strong connotations with hypnosis, which is essentially what Bahame Time Magic is. It's like such a cool second level to be added onto his implement that just makes it all kind of fit into, pe- into place so nicely. Yeah, that's such a fantastic observation, and yeah, I I love that so much. That's just a, yeah, I I love everything about this comment. It's yeah, so good. It's such a great one, definitely. Um, what's another good one? Oh, so Mayhem, a user called Mayhem, pointed out that uh, after Blake defeats Duncan at the police station, he goes back to his cell and falls asleep. Um, and he sleeps for what seems like to him to be something like six or seven hours, which 
obviously he had just kind of drained himself of blood so it doesn't seem too weird but it is a bit it is a bit like oh blake you slept for a long time there um but of course now we know that that wasn't that long it was actually something like two or three hours and he just kind of was catching up with his missed perceptions of time yeah and i think blake even theorizes that it's like if he if duncan had gotten to do around three then it's like you know from blake's perspective he would have woken up in his cell like you know another three or four hours yeah later. like he would have felt like he slept for 10 hours or something yeah uh yeah yeah it's awesome um i, I think the police station is one of the um, is full of these moments another one that is pointed out by a user called dread pirate points out that when blake wakes up for the second time in air quotes he notices that he woke up later because the sun is much much higher in the sky and this is just kind of like oh yeah of course because (laughs) obviously you woke up later because you you were already awake you just kind of have experienced three hours later than you thought you would do you think because obviously because it's just their perception that's being messed with like blake wasn't in his cell when duncan does the the spell to send them back yeah so do you think like they all get sort of teleported by the spirits <laughs> back to their original location or was there just this like scene change moment where everyone was like walking back to their original positions uh, yeah. like somebody had, somebody had called cut and, and they all kind of zone out and walk back to where they were duncan puts them to sleep first and then spends about an hour meticulously dragging people <laughs> around before he kind of calls action again i don't know i i suspect they are kind of teleported back or they kind of uh have a have about a, a minute of kind of zombie-ish like rewinding maybe um yeah i mean i don't think it matters at all so i'm gonna go with the more hilarious answer which is that they all zombie back <laughs> oh no i think the best answer is duncan has to <laughs> manually put them in back into place <laughs> um anyway yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so those were three of the comments <laughs> that i really liked that just called out these little hints uh that, that were dropped throughout the story um i love this kind yeah. of stuff um, and so another comment we should quickly mention uh, is the first comment in the thread is from Wabo himself, mm. uh, and he comments that this chapter came out on the three-year anniversary of him uploading and scheduling the first chapter of Worm. Yeah. Uh, and so that means, using mathematics, mm-hmm. that uh, today the is the eight-year yep. anniversary. Uh, so it's essentially the eight-year anniversary of Wabo's starting web-serialized stories. Uh, yeah. Which is, you know, like that, that's, he's written so much. Yeah, it's a, um, it's but a also, big occasion. What can we do to commemorate I mean, I, it, Elliot? <laughs> well, I, I just want to say eight years is like such a long time to be, to be doing this. But yeah. also for what he's written, eight years is like also like, you know, he's written so yeah. much more than eight years worth of content uh, at the same time. It, how long has the, the latest Game of Thrones book been taking? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, like um, with all that yeah, in mind, so- the fact that he's done so much and he's done it over, you know, a significant amount of time, uh, we just wanted to give an extra special shout out to patreon.com slash Wabo, which yeah. is obviously uh, how Wabo gets rewarded for these fantastic stories. You know, he relies on this for his income. So if you can spare some dollars, please do. Yeah, I th- I, he's been doing it for eight years. And I think it's easy for people to, at this point, think something along the lines of like, oh, well, if he's already able to make an income off it, it doesn't matter too much if I donate or not. But that's that's a that's a naive level of thinking i think because patrons do drop off and people forget to update their credit card or whatever it is and so we do need more patrons to come in to make sure that wabo is able to do this sustainably you know um so yeah absolutely definitely check it out and you know you don't have to donate you don't if you unable to of course but any donation that you can give would be helpful to Wob. um i know he also has i think a, a paypal if you want to do a one-time donation you don't want to have a whole patreon account set up that's fine too yes um yeah so patreon.com slash uh now 
our next episode, 7.6, will be coming out on Friday the 14th. But until then, if you want to talk about this big reveal and leave us your favourite moments of time fuckery that were kind of hinted at from earlier in the story, the best place to do that is in our discussion thread, which will be linked in the show notes of this episode down below. Yeah, and if you've already forgotten that date, like I have, uh, you could just head to doofmedia.com and one of the cool perks, uh, sorry, not one of the cool perks, one of the cool features <laughs> on that perk. website. why not? <laughs> yeah, okay. One of the cool perks of that website is the calendar page, which shows you when all yeah. the episodes are coming out. Not just of our show, but of all the other great shows on the Doof Media Network. Yes, and there are a number of great shows on there. Uh, check out the calendar, and why not just pick a day at random? Because I'm pretty sure that Scott and Matt record a podcast every single day. So pick a random day and check out a new random show. There's there's great stuff in there for everybody to enjoy. Um, yeah, and of course, some of the things on there, you may be like, huh, what's that? I don't know that. And that's because they're patron exclusives. Uh, so things like being able to actually watch Matt and Scott record uh, We've Got Ward Live. Yep. Uh, uh, there's monthly one of those Q&As. Books. Yeah, so there's a bunch of cool stuff that are, that are you know, sort of patron-only sessions. So if you head to patreon.com slash doofmedia, you can find out more about those and uh, come, and, come and start getting involved in them. Yes, uh, something that we don't usually plug every episode, but I think is worth a, worth a shout-out, is our Twitter, uh, at MediaMDPodcast. You can go there and you can uh, chat to us, tweet at us, and uh, we'll probably respond. I've got it set up to send me notifications, so if you tweet at me or follow us on there, I'll, uh, I'll get it and I'll give you a, a digital shout-out or a digital high-five or whatever the kids do on Twitter these days. Yes, I'm actually in the process of learning how to use Twitter to Oh my to god, get Elliot, in. did you get a Twitter <laughs> set up? Finally! Uh, yes, so I will be I'll be learning how to use that that Twitter account as well. Yes, that's and, what, uh, it's called Twitter. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, uh, and so I I too will be able to respond to the tweets we get on Twitter. There you go. If that isn't an extra special reason to follow us on Twitter, I don't know what is. Um, apart from that, we will see you all for the next episode on uh, of seven point six on Friday the fourteenth. See ya. Bye.